Good evening on this Thursday evening, just after 9 p.m. Welcome to Cape Talk. My name's Martin Myers, the host of the Business of Entertainment. And last week we were delighted to have Dr. Trevor Jones, one of the eminent film composers in the world. In fact, Time magazine named him one of the top five. And I thought I'd bring him back this week because we've got so much to talk about. Um, His home um, was Abbey Road. I mean, he's been in Abbey Road longer than I've nearly been alive. And then we're going to touch on copyright cases and we're going to and we're going to touch on the sacrifices that he made to to get onto that huge scale. But Trevor, you alluded last week in our in our first weeks of conversation here on Cape Talk on the business of entertainment, um, Elvis Costello's song She. And you wanted to mention how many spins it's had on Spotify, an absolutely enormous amount. Well, apparently it's. Uh uh, 118 million plays or downloads or whatever it is. <laughs> and I find that incredible. You know, it um, must be one of the most downloaded songs going. Certainly it was a very lucrative session for Elvis because <laughs> he only came in for under an hour to kind of do this half an hour or something. <laughs> so there we are. These things happen, don't they? They do seem to happen. They seem to happen to you. But I I want to talk about Abbey Road. Um, It's the mythical pace that I think every listener knows about. They want to go inside it. Um, You did um, an interview years ago with Derek Watts um, from Carte Blanche. I think if people type in Trevor Jones Carte Blanche, you'll see it. And you take Derek into Studio 2 and he's jaw-droppingly in awe where you say, oh, it's got a great reverb and you click your finger and it's a two-second reverb and that... What mm. is that relationship with Abbey Road? Well, I, for I, you, it's 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 my musical home because basically um, it was the first studio I recorded in when I first went to England. For some reason, somebody asked me to do an orchestration uh, for an EMI recording. I did it. Turned up to the session. I thought, "Oh my word, I'm here!" And the Beatles are in the next uh, studio, Studio Two. And, um, you know, I got so used to it. I was a student at the time at the academy, and there I was working in Abbey Road just because somebody asked me to do a little job. Um, So during that time, that cemented my relationship, and over the years I just kept going back to Abbey Road. Um, The fact is that it wasn't all, uh, you know, a bed of roses because the studio was in such a bad state at one point in its career that the local authority wanted it to become a car park in St. John's Wood. So Studio One, uh, the whole of the building would be knocked down and the place it would have been replaced uh, as a car park. And a number of composers actually fought for the studio to be re- retained because we said this is an iconic place you know amazing recordings have been done there you can't just knock it down because it's not making money or it's not doing this that or the other so frank uh, frankly uh, it was saved in the end but it has been my home it's uh, where i've recorded all my instrumental work where i've recorded all the uh, london symphony orchestra scores for you know all the big movies I've worked on, uh, which need huge orchestral scores. You, hang on, hang on, hang on! Whoa, huge orchestral scores! Mm-hmm. How many people <laughs> are in these orchestras, and mm-hmm. how much layering do you put 
violence on top of violence with the tricks in, in, in the studio and that? I mean, well, uh, an orchestra can uh, comprise anything from 60 to 110, 115. Uh, 120 people, depending on how, you know whether you have triple wind or extended brass, or and so on. And then you have a choir that you can use of anything from 60 to uh, to 200 people that you then add to the score. So the big scores need that kind of uh, mass because the you know sometimes just from the point of view of the screen. Uh, you kind of need that impact, that sound, to give it full resonance and full body, you know. Um, so I find it very easy to work in an environment like Abbey Road because the quality of engineering is stunning. It is the best I've ever encountered. The technology is always state-of-the-art, and uh, all you're doing as a musician is focusing 100% on the music. I'm not worried about a tape going off or something popping or there's no distraction. The whole focus is on the music, which is what we're all there to do. And the Hollywood uh, studios know what a composer's um, uh, ability, they have a kind of chart that each of us have where they know that you can shoot X amount of music in X amount of time for X amount of money. It's a, a financial industrial equation that uh, you as a composer have, you know, have to bear. I mean, it, it must be eye-watering figures to, to hire a, a studio space like that. And you start work at 9 o'clock and your hand goes up to conduct. There's no one arriving African time. Am I right? <laughs> I don't know what African <laughs> time is. No, I mean... Uh, well, Being late. Can I just say, yes. well, I've been incredibly fortunate to work with some of the world's most amazing musicians. And I'm every day I wake up, pinch myself and think, my God, I had such a great time with David Bowie. And on meeting him, he's, you know, the man put his arms around me and he said, I'm in awe of your talent. Well, when somebody <laughs> says that to you, you're instantly in love with him. I don't care if he can't sing. <laughs> I don't care. I'm going to make him sing well. <laughs> he was just brilliant. But the fact of the matter is when you're in that fortunate position to work at that level with those kind of musicians, then you marvel at the way in which they are so uh, organized. They are so disciplined. David Bay came to do a session at six o'clock, four songs. Half past five, David Bay was in front of the microphone warming up. This enabled the, uh, um, the engineer to get levels on his voice, to try various microphones, to do whatever he wanted to do, because Mr. Bowie was just being there. At the moment that second hand hit the hour, red light came on, we went in to record, and he started doing takes. We did four songs. Pray tell the movie, please. Uh, a labyrinth. Okay. There we go. Listeners, Labyrinth. Go get that. You're getting the backstory. <laughs> then 9 o'clock, the second hand went up. Tick, tick. 9 o'clock, 
the session finished. At ten past nine, we were in the Indian restaurant around the corner, enjoying a Rogan Josh. You know, this is professionalism. These are people who are disciplined, who know their craft, who channel, who focus, who prepare. And as I said to you before, you know, the whole secret is uh, prepare or prepare to fail. Mm. That's basically what these people do. Is is that the thing? And, and, and we seem to talk about it a lot in South Africa, this laissez-faire attitude of, oh, we'll get there manana, African time. Is that the one thing that drives you a bit nutty in this country that there's oh, five minutes late, not a problem? Mm. It doesn't seem to work in your world. No, it doesn't. It does. There's no. There's no way it can. And I had said, but you know, as I was trying to say to you in the lift on the way up here, I I think you know I don't want to fall in love again. I don't want to fall in love with my home country again because when I left it, the I was homesick for years, for four five years. In England, you're bound to be homesick. You're not getting the sun. There's no heat. You're freezing cold. You're but you, but you had your passport and that taken away. You were stateless. Am I? Am I right? Yes, my passport was torn up, and that was it. I didn't actually have a. Pa- I couldn't leave England for a period of ten years. Uh, I was trapped, uh, and what I did was I used to take the uh, bus. There was a long-distance bus, went to various cities like Edinburgh and Cardiff and so on. So in my uh, holidays, when I had time off uh, practicing at the academy, I had a little bicycle, which I used to put in the the suitcase compartment of the bus. And then I'd either go to Edinburgh, get the bike out and go cycling for a couple of weeks. And that's how I got to know the UK so well and fell in love with the United Kingdom because I actually didn't know anything other than the District 6 and some friends in the Cape Flats. I, I didn't, I'd never been anywhere in South Africa before the age of 17. Or one didn't, you know. I went to the beach on uh, Boxing Day, um, I think two or three times. Um, but that was all I knew about South Africa. Now, of course, my wife and I are discovering the most amazing country in the world. It's stunningly beautiful. It has so much to offer, and it has so much natural resources, you know, not the least of which is the most incredible talent. We have talent coming out of our ears here. Uh, on a you know on a scale that if it's developed and nurtured it's going to knock the socks off international uh, um, uh, competitions songs music everything film we have all the most extraordinary film studios we've got everything here we just need to focus and get down to getting on. I mean, with your, it, your, yeah. your whole your whole family, and you, and you are deeply private, and and we understand that because you always said to me, um, I've got to be in the film industry. And we're if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Dr. Trevor Jones and myself, Martin Myers. We're hosting the business business of entertainment, and Trevor's kindly come back this Thursday. But you needed to be where the producers are. The man in the street was not going to give you 
scoring a labyrinth or an in the name of the father. Um, are we doing enough? And I know I'm jumping far ahead from Abbey Road to education here in South Africa in terms of the arts and the importance of arts, because you alluded to in, in, in the, the first week that you, that you came in, that scholarship and how fundamentally it changed your life. You went overseas. I had to. There was no choice. I mean, the fact of the matter is that like a lot of, like most countries, you know, governments are always in trouble, whichever government, whichever country. But uh, a society that doesn't look after its old, its infirmed, its handicapped people, uh, and its youth, its youngsters, that's the new country, that's the new South Africa, if you don't invest in those three things, then it's not a society that I want to be uh, part of, frankly. And what we're doing is we're keeping the masses down by not educating them. And that's my truck with Britain, with uh, South Africa, with all those politicians. It's in their interest not to put money in education because who's going to sweep the streets if everyone's educated and being brain surgeons? Well, it doesn't work like that. You know, you've got societies like Sweden, Norway, where the dustbinmen are earning uh, a, a great deal of money and they're dustbinmen. It doesn't mean to say that uh, they don't need to be educated. You know, the fact is that we don't educate, we don't put money into education, and in my field, they don't even teach kids music at school. It's so easy to introduce a, a young kid to music. It's the easiest thing in the world. I grew up in St. Phillips in Cape Town, here in Chapel Street, District 6, and George Feltman, who didn't read music, drew us, this is a crotchet, this is a quaver, this is, you know, this is a tune that he wrote. And it had a, a formidable effect on me. I, I love the shape of the crotchet. I now do my crotchets the way George Feltman taught me. Even now, 60, 70 years later as a professional, I'm, I'm still thinking about this man who at primary school in District 6 put into, seeded in my mind the fact that I could write music. And God knows I wrote so many <laughs> crotches and quavers since then. I mean, you, you, you are Dr. Trevor Jones. Most of your work is housed academically in certain universities in the United Kingdom. They have spent an inordinate amount of money scoring it and making sure it's mm. safe and that. £575,000 to digitize my tapes, my scores. I mean, they should have spent that on scholarships, really. That's my feeling about it. That's, at, le that's at Leeds, uni uh, which university? It was the Arts uh, and Humanitarian Council of Great Britain decided that they should take all my work and digitize it because the tapes were getting old, you know, mm. and uh, shedding. How much work have you got out? I mean, so artists, and, and you know I'm going to touch on it later, um, the Generations theme that you did for Mafudi Wundler, um, you had Sipa Hotsticks Mabuse play on it, you've worked with Ladysmith Black Bambazo, you have done stuff with South African artists and that. 
how much work do you have out there? Some artists in their career might have two, three hundred songs and they go, oh, that's a big catalogue. Mm. Bearing in mind some of your pieces might be 30 seconds long, 20 seconds long, or three minutes. Mm. Do you keep count? Um, the University of Leeds actually have an archive which uh, is being uh, attended to at the moment, and they're finishing up on that. hope to finish it in July, uh, August. And basically, so far, I think it's over 6,000, uh, which is a lot. Of, and I've got the scars to prove it, Martin. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's just, you know, uh, I love doing it. It's always a challenge. And the thing is, you're always learning, and you're always being humbled by the fact that you think, you know what, I wish I'd known this 20 years ago. Or, uh, or the, the, you're kind of humbled by the fact that the more you know, the more you know that you don't know. Can I tell a war story now? You said <laughs> to me, you're doing so much mentorship. You're working in Madrid. Um, Daniel, Marinelli, Daniel Marinelli is, is one of the names who's won an Oscar. Um, your other Stephen great friend. Price. I wanted to talk about Stephen Austin's Price. Thank you. Hang on. Is. Now, you brought him to South Africa first. And he wrote to you the other day, you showed me, he was struggling with, with a piece of work. Mm. And you went back and you said such a profound thing. Remember why you started. Mm. And I told that to my daughter who was struggling with an um, uh, exam piece for UNISA. And I said to her, Casey, remember why she's doing environmental science, why you started. Mm. Is that what drives you? You remember why you started well you know when you when you're up against it uh, the fatigue the tiredness the stress the aggravation from studios and money and everything else you just have to try and clear all that and focus but the fact of the matter is that you started because you fell in love with music and then you fell in love with the fact that or you could entertain audiences that audiences responded to your music on uh, a shot of uh, Hugh Grant and um, Julia uh, Roberts. Julia Roberts. <laughs> I know, I always forget these mega stars <laughs> and people think, what? He's got no brain, he can't remember. Well, Julia Roberts, gorgeous lady, lovely lady. Um, and you know, you know that you can influence an audience response to a story. Uh, because it is only a story, you know. These these uh, worlds don't exist. And my first trip to to Paramount Studios was Paramount, uh, 20th Century Fox, and there was the on the set as you drove in was the set for Hello Dolly, New York skyline, and I thought, this is Hello. Do oh my God, I'm in Hollywood. This is Hello Dolly, and I was just overcome. And the next day, it was gone. And I thought, oh my God, hello, Dolly's <laughs> gone. They've taken this thing away. I couldn't believe, actually, that uh, it's an illusion. It doesn't exist. Film doesn't exist. And it comes as a great shock to my system that Yoda and, you know, the Ewoks and all those guys are little midgets or animatronic things that run around. And I live in a make-believe world where I actually believe that, you know, frankly, at the end of the day, an education would 
improve all of us so much. Uh, we, we, the South African, uh, in the next generation of the Rainbow Nation deserves all the support and help it can get because that is the South Africa of the future. And I just feel very, very strongly about this, that unless we put money into education, uh, we're lost. We're, we're going to lose so much. And this country's going to go on limping along, you know, without, in a very dysfunctional fashion. Turning to, and you alluded to it earlier, business. These copyright cases we read in the newspaper. Um, I'm going to mention a name. Um, Ed Sheeran seems to get lambasted every now and again. Some guy pops up and says, oh, I took the melody and this song is mine. Mm-hmm. Well, he's only suing because it's a mega hit. Have you been called into courts of law all over the world to simplify for the jury, like Brett and myself, layman who couldn't tell you where middle C is, mm. that, no, there's only so many notes in an octave and there's this and there's that and there's no plagiarism. Mm. Do well, they call on you for expertise? They do. I've appeared many times trying to make sense of why something is similar to something else uh, or why they should find for or against and basically the bottom line is intent if somebody intended to rip off that piece of music then that's it there's no uh, gain saying that but you know occasionally because of the parameters of music because of there are only so many notes on the keyboard there how many notes are there on a keyboard well <laughs> so many octaves times 13 there are about eight octaves times 13 i think so basically you've got a limited uh, number of notes but you've also got a limited number of rhythms that you can use and uh, a limited number of instrumentation mm. or orchestra uh, I- instruments that you can use so everything is finite so mathematically you should be able to have, um, um, use all the permutations of all those things at some point or another now this doesn't mean to say that somebody doesn't think oh I love this song and I'm going to produce something similar um, the idea is it's, it can stem from an idea, but it mustn't copy uh, and intend to copy um, because that's stealing, basically. Mm-hmm. Plagiarism is stealing. But uh, let me just play you two things, if I may, if it's at all possible. No, absolutely. Um, the the opening of a f- movie by Congo called uh, uh, King's Row and the opening of a very well-known tune that everybody knows. And then I'd love you to hear the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto, this particular tune, and I'd like you to hear another well-known song. So just given those two examples, uh, you tell me, was this plagiarism? Or, you know, what would you decide? And if the listeners would like to get involved, it's 072-567-1567. That's the WhatsApp number. It's Twitter. It's at Cape Talk. You can even tweet me. I do exist. At Martin Myers. Martin, one word, Myers, M-Y-E-R-S. And you've tuned into the business of entertainment with 
the doyen. I don't know what other adjectives to use. The giant, Dr. Trevor Jones, who's talking about film and the business of entertainment every Thursday night here on Cape Talk from 9 to 9.30. Yeah, Trev, we've heard those songs now. And now what? <laughs> now it's up to you to realize the position that I'm in uh, a lot of the time. You know, how do you, how do you judge what is plagiarism? what is copying and uh, you know that's a situation that one finds oneself in quite often you've been so generous um, with your time coming in two consecutive weeks because there is so much to cover but I would like to go back to the mom or the dad and the school kid listening at home going wow I can do that mm. just talk us in real terms, some of the sacrifices that you had to make. You left District 6, you went to London, then you go to Hollywood, and you, and you, and you said to me, it's a mad idea. Man from District 6 working in Hollywood, you can make a movie out of this. The pressures and what you had to sacrifice, it's 365 days a year. You're working flat out. I mean, you must have traveled the Concord many times for meetings and that. Mm -hmm. Eight months, f uh, twice a week. <laughs> I think I think that must be a record. We've, I've got to uh, ask British Airways because I used to fly to New York. Yeah. I used to have ten o'clock meetings in London, yeah. and have ten o'clock meetings the same day in New York because Concord would get to um, uh, you know New York. York. There'd be a helicopter taking you to the top of a hotel on Central Park. You take the elevator down to the uh, thing, then walk into Times Square, or <laughs> or take a cab to the to your your meeting. So uh, the only downside is that um, you you had you had to have a motorbike uh, thing. Your bags would go ahead, mm. but uh, there'd be a motorbike collecting you, and you'd weave your way through traffic uh, in London in the rush hour, or else you'd miss the flight. You know. Um, but yes, it's been an extraordinary existence where it's almost as though I'm schizophrenic. On the one hand, I am kind of acknowledge my background and where I'm from. On the other hand, i am you know, spent my life in the fast lane, uh, in the music business, in the music world, in, uh, at the Academy, at the BBC, at the National Film School. This is another part of the same person. Uh, you can't take, you can take Cape Town out of the boy, but you can't take the boy out of Cape Town. I don't know what the expression is, but it's similar. I'll always, my roots are here. This is where I come from. This is who I am. And basically, I feel extraordinarily homesick when I'm away. Now, I find it hard to go back to that life, and I... I love the fact that I can talk and have meetings on fast fiber, optical, uh, or whatever it's called, you know, broadband or whatever it is. It's stunning. I want to, to close off with your honorary doctorate from UCT, but before that you always had a, a fantastic story. People used to come to your house in London. It was a safe house. You wrote themes, music yeah. themes, and you've never been acknowledged for that, and people haven't talked about that can you just elude I don't, I, don't, I don't want to give it away sure um, well here's the thing 
my darling brother Colin Jones, who is an eminent uh, Cape Townian. Cape Townian. Uh, he uh, would arrive at my door and say, I've got some friends coming over. Can I um, use your front room? And I'd say, fine, because I was downstairs in the studio. And what I was doing down <laughs> in the studio was we had a campaign for anti-apartheid commercials, which were being shot and distributed internationally. And I did all the music for it. For instance, we'd have a shot of a pool table with all these colored balls, and then a white ball would be placed on, and the cue would be, and it would bang, and all these colored balls go all over the table. Some would go down the hole or, or, or whatever. And basically, they were commercials, very short, very pithy. It was anti-apartheid, and it was also don't buy South African goods, don't uh, Barclays Bank and uh, Outspan Oranges, you name it. Everybody was trying, you know, you were trying to promote, to, to stop the world from, uh, or penalize South Africa for keeping this regime going. So that's what I was doing downstairs. Um, upstairs, my brother was meeting this people uh, who were living outside of South Africa for health and safety reasons, people like Tabo and Becky. <laughs> and I had no idea. I had no idea. He'd say, they'd be, I've got some friends coming over. And I'd look at these gentlemen and s say, hello, how are you? Would you like some tea? And so on. And they'd be there. Uh, it, he never made uh, a fuss about it, except my neighbor, uh, who happened to be an Australian journalist, said to me, do you know you've got two white cars virtually permanently outside your house? And you you do realize they're from uh, uh, Boss. I said, who, who are Boss? <laughs> <laughs> and apparently uh, the, the house was under surveillance and everything was happening. And I just used to merrily go on my, my way, you know. But we did have... Uh, a stream of very eminent people, uh, sort of who who politically were living outside um, um, of South Africa and who uh, would meet at at my home in London, and I had no idea that you know exactly uh, the, the nature of the the things under discussion, but it must have had some effect because. They became really eminent, especially Mr. Mbaki. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor, I, I want to close off. Last year you were awarded an honorary doctorate from UCT. Happy? I, I'm thrilled because, you know, a little kid at the age of 10 walking into South, into the South African College of Music with a massive stammer. I've made up for it since then. But, you know, until the time I left for England, I had a, 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 a stammer, which was very, very bad. I couldn't get my words out. I, you know, people thought I was, a, and a lot of people still do, think I was <laughs> a mental deficient because I couldn't actually express myself. But to walk into the University of Cape Town and have been honored with this degree 
having been given a scholarship by this alma mater uh, to go to England in the first place, I felt, you know, this is a full circle of something very special. The University of the Western Cape gave me uh, a doctorate, I don't know, decades ago. And, and you, ha you set up a whole music studio and all of that? Yes. There, what happened? I don't know. Unfortunately, the UWC didn't oh. uh, keep their, uh, their music program going. And so I'm not sure what happened to the studios. It's something or the to dig up and, and ask that equipment. question. But um, yes, it was very sad. Um, but uh, prior to that, if I'd known people were going to give me all these wretched doctorates, <laughs> chaps, I wouldn't have studied for my f first doctorate at the University of East Anglia, you know, or my post <laughs> postgraduate uh, post studies at the University of York. I would have just sat there and thought, well, maybe people will give me a doctorate and I don't have to <laughs> do this work. No, I jest. I jest. <laughs> I, know you, I know you jest. But Trevor, in closing, yep. there's not an instrument you can't play and there's not a voice that you can't <laughs> say to a person, oh, you speak in this tone and you're on this key. Yes. Am I right? Well, Come on, don't be <laughs> modest. Well, I, listen, my, my playing is diabolical. Mm. I just get by, you know. I know, I just love playing instruments. But when people say to me, when are you going to retire? That is is unbelievable. What? Retire? You're crazy. Uh, what? What is retiring? from? And from what am I retiring? I've done my hobby all my life. And when you work at something that you love doing and you get paid for doing it, that's a charmed life. And I have a lot to be grateful for and a lot of thanks to give to heaven for making uh, this journey so special. You know, I'm deeply indebted to whoever's up there um, because it's been an amazing journey. And uh, I just want to create the opportunities for other people to go on similar journeys. You know, that's my, uh, that's what I get the most kick out of these days. Um, so that's it, basically. <laughs> it's very humbling. Um, it's been a gracious and humbling two weeks. I think Brett and I are sitting here a bit starry-eyed completely with what's occurred in the last two weeks on the business of entertainment with our guest for the first two weeks, Dr. Trevor Jones. And he will be in Cape Town in June. He'll be at um, Grand West Music Exchanges in its 13th year. He's one of the keynote speakers. So who knows what else. And come and rub shoulders. But... Um, it's humbling, and all I can say is a grateful thanks for starting off um, a wonderful series that Cape Talk has blessed us with called The Business of Entertainment. See you next Thursday. Thank you. Good night.